Hello, I'm Eleanor Hansen-Wise. And I'm Oliver Wise. And we're speaking today with Helena Keefe, the 11th artist for the present group. It's Tuesday, August 23rd, and we're in Oakland, California. Hi, Helena. Thanks for being here today. Hello. We usually like to get started with a little history. Have you always pursued art? And if not, when did you start getting into it? Um, I guess you could say I've always pursued art in that... Um, that's what I went to college for when I graduated from high school and um, was always interested in it as a kid. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I was interested in um, psychology and I st studied Spanish. Um, in school? In high school. and But okay. then um, I, I'm not sure, like when I think about like making that final decision to go to art school. I mean, my grandmother was an artist and, and like did a lot of, like taught me how to paint and things like that when I was younger, but I I specifically remember her kind of dis like disapproving. I was surprised she, when I decided to go to art school. She mm. was like, "You don't want to do that." Um, Why? I think because she had had like struggled to make a living as an artist, or she was just a bit jaded about like that that world. And I mean, she ended up making a living as a teacher she worked with developmentally disabled adults a lot and um and just has been a teacher in lots of different ways that's how she made a living but I don't know I think she kind of felt like you don't need art school to be an artist if you want to make art just make art and um was the school you went to specifically an art school yeah I went to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design yeah I don't know I guess like I I really felt like um I wanted to meet other people who were as interested in art as I was and I I went to high school in a small town um Wausau Wisconsin after living in Minneapolis for most of my life and I kind of had this sense that there was a lot of a lot out there that I wasn't being exposed to that I wanted to learn more about so you know I did the like art school fair thing and I didn't want to be super far away from my family so Minneapolis was close and seemed like a good school and so I just kind of did four years straight through all the way um, traveled to Ireland for a semester as part of a program there in then after in 2005 when after you moved out here mm -hmm. um, you went to the independent school of art yeah that was um, I, I was sort of just starting to think about the idea of um, grad school and John Rubin had just started this, was just about to start the Independent School of Art, and um, so it seemed like a good way to kind of test out being in that environment again of sort of critiques and students and um, without kind of jumping into a full grad program. So um, it was great. It was um, a really kind of ideal school kind of situation because it was informal um, and it was very like everyone contributing to p putting projects together versus I don't know one of th the reasons I think I haven't actually gone to grad school is because I don't totally believe in the sort of authority structure like the dynamics that end up being kind of mm. set up of like student teacher and that was a little more blurry and interesting with the ISA. Can you describe what the school was? Okay, yeah. Um, I think my understanding was that um, John Rubin, it was John Rubin and um, Bob Linder were 
the first two teachers, but I think it came out of John Rubin's kind of frustration with the limitations of teaching at CCA and SFEI and some of the like walls he was hitting there. And also some of like that he saw that there were students that were really engaged and, and really motivated. And he wanted to be able to kind of like cherry pick working with a group of students that was all motivated, not just like one or two motivated students. And then a bunch of students who like took a ton of energy to like pull up from there so so it was a really like great group of people because he kind of like asked students from CCA and SFI who he'd worked with and then you know through word of mouth um, kind of put together this group of people who had similar interests and were all like really motivated to make things happen so we did things like um, well, we had critiques regularly once once a week, but then we'd organ we'd do events together. That was kind of the other main thing. The black market auction um, was probably the most memorable for me. We basically recruited a bunch of people to make counterfeit artworks, and then we had an auction, and um, <laughs> and they were everything from um, but from from really conceptual artworks to paintings um being why were they counterfeit recreate so basically i like i did a made a bruce connor inkblot okay. painting with my friend leslie actually we we both worked on it together so so the idea was to like make works that we really like like recreate works that we really liked and sell them to make money to support the next event that we threw <laughs> did they sell yeah they did in fact i think um I think that our Bruce Connor might have sold to someone who worked in a gallery in 49 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a kind of way to, like, honor those artists in a way by recreating their works and, like, not take the whole art auction, selling of artwork, art market so seriously to kind of, like, play with that form that is so common in the Bay Area of, of the auction and do something just like a kind of a twist on it. Do you think that not having an MFA has hindered you in any way in, in terms of getting new projects? And I I don't think so. I mean, I don't necessarily feel like in terms of what I've pursued, like I haven't really pursued serious teaching jobs, which obviously having an MFA is more necessary for or even gallery representation I, I think of that as being a little more like when you enter the um, graduate programs a lot of the commercial galleries look to, to the people coming out of those programs to pick up new artists to work with but that hasn't really been a goal of mine so far so um, I learned a lot about grant writing from a really great teacher I had an undergrad who did a lot of public art and I just started it right, like I started right out of undergrad um, applying for grants. And so I think just over the 10 years since I graduated, I've been just doing it over and over again and and getting better at it. So seems like you've had a lot of success without it. Yeah, I mean, and I am to a point now where I've kind of like, um, again, gotten to a place where I'm wanting to reevaluate and think differently about the way that I work and I'm not sure what is gonna support me in that yet. How do you how do you work? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like I said, I'm kind of maybe redefining that, but um, I think what's happened ever since I got out of school is 
I need structure. I need something to sort of respond to. And so my ideas have always kind of come from a specific experience or involvement with a community of people. For example, the project I just finished at Laguna Honda Hospital came out of volunteering at Creativity Explored and working with um, adults with developmental disabilities there and kind of getting to know them, getting to know, like starting to wonder about their lives and particularly about institutional living and what that was like, especially for artists, for these people who were really creative in this day program and then had to go back at night to an institutional setting where I imagine they had a lot less kind of freedom and a lot less acknowledgement of themselves as artists and um, and the few of them worked at Laguna Hospital so I started to think about um, ways that their artwork could be integrated into the institution and that's how I started thinking about making taking their artwork and having it made into textiles for scrubs and pillowcases so usually there's like some kind of experience I have that will just sort of trigger an idea of like well how could this be different I guess or or what could I bring to this situation that would kind of a lot of times it's like a hybridization like trying to kind of make bridges between things that would normally not be connected or try to like um have hybridized functions for things that wouldn't normally work together that's where a lot of my ideas come from <laughs> in your artist statement, you write that you try to create situations that encourage vulnerability and intimacy where one might otherwise expect a formal authority. Could you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, I I um I think specifically about like the first pro- project I did outside of school, which was on city buses in Minneapolis and again, the experience of riding the bus I started to um I had one experience in particular where a guy just got up. Well, he started, he was kind of arguing with his girlfriend about um, whether it was a man's duty to provide for the woman or if it should be equal. And actually the woman was arguing like, no, a man is supposed to provide for the woman. He he was saying, no, it's supposed to be equal. And he finally, he was started getting up and sitting next to different people on the bus and asking them kind of like taking an informal survey what do you think and then he finally just got up and stood at the front of the bus next to the driver and just addressed the whole bus as his (laughs) captive audience you know and um and that was really exciting to me like that kind of break in the the norm the kind of unspoken social rules of that public space the city bus and And so then I started to think that's not really my style to get up and like (laughs) talk to the whole, to everyone on the bus, but what are ways that I could kind of disrupt the, um, the normal unspoken rules. And so I started doing things like, um, I would wait at the bus stop with a bucket and a window washer and just wash as many windows on the bus as I could while (laughs) people were getting on and off. Or I would pretend to fall asleep on the shoulder of the person next to me. That was probably the scariest one. But I mean, that was something I actually saw happen and then just decided that that's something I could do. Um, and then I, I bought like a $20 bus pass and just stood at the front and paid for everyone um, until my bus pass ran out. So I just started like, and, and also thinking about people talking on cell phones at that time it was kind of, you know, people were still getting used to that and. I was like, well, it's annoying to overhear someone's conversation, but what if they were 
reading a book to somebody then they're like reading to everyone on the bus (laughs) (laughs) which is a little more interesting so yeah I think that's that hopefully kind of exemplifies what I'm talking about when I say that especially I think has to do with city dwelling where people are having to be guarded and are kind of anonymous and so vulnerability and intimacy are um like things that aren't that seems like there's no space for sometimes in public life in urban places so trying to find little cracks where that can fit in yeah one of the things we both really like about your work in general is how you foster community by creating new connections between people and places and the moon phase project is similar because it will there'll be sort of this small group you know almost like a secret society (laughs) um connected by these pins and the moon and i don't know we just wanted you would you agree with that and yeah i was just thinking before coming over just trying to reconnect with like where where the idea originated and it's actually something i've been thinking about for a long time and um i've done projects where I've organized people to just remake each other's clothing and um, I think this kind of relates to that in a way of just sort of thinking about what we wear as having the potential to be something more than just like a style or a brand advertisement or a political message but like so those are some of the things that clothing the role some of the roles clothing plays and thinking about well what else could what you wear do and and thinking about it having a role the role of connecting again like an urban dweller to um to nature in some way Mm. to natural cycles that are really hard to like stay aware of and stay in touch with living in a city just because of all the noise and busyness and light and whatever so yeah I didn't necessarily I don't know that I necessarily at first like thought about that the, the idea of like all the subscribers being a little community or secret society but I I I like that, and I think that um, these threads sometimes come through without me mm-hmm. necessarily consciously putting them mm-hmm. putting them there. How did you start getting interested in the moon and the phases of the moon? I don't know. I guess it's just like kind of everyday experiences. Of um, I actually remember when I was seventeen, I I went to Spain as an exchange student, and that was a really um, important period of my life in general but I specifically remember walking down a street in this village with this group of teenagers and, and coming over a hill in this sort of harvest moon like moon close to the horizon orange and now that I know what a lunar eclipse is I think that there's a possibility it was a lunar eclipse because the moon was like just kind of this dull glowing orange and he looked huge on the horizon mm. and I just remember that feeling like it was just kind of all of a sudden everything was like put into perspective like I'm in Spain with a bunch (laughs) of teenagers on this you know planet that is has this (laughs) other (laughs) celestial body not so far away um so I don't know I just and, and I grew up camping too and that experience of like just laying under the stars and feeling very small and having everything put into perspective by by just staring at stars and the moon um, is is like a really nice feeling. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's I mean in a way the pins are 
a pathetic attempt maybe at like <laughs> trying to connect to that feeling but um but they're an attempt 